Welcome to the Good Research Podcast, where we talk about those topics that most interest you, helping you make your research study the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Dr. Lauren Seifert. This is episode four of Good Research. I am Dr. Lauren Seifert, and the Good Research podcasts are for research students, as well as researchers who would like to brush up on research techniques and methods. In the first three episodes of Good Research, I discussed four basic questions that should be answered before a researcher's work begins. Those questions relate to ontology, epistemology, generalizability, and reflexivity. I described basic tips for devising a research question, and I guided listeners through an exercise with the four basic questions so that they might better understand their own assumptions and be more apt to select a research orientation that fits their assumptions. In addition, I described the varieties of research, including observational studies, case studies, surveys, quasi-experiments, and true experiments. I'll return to those methods in later episodes of Good Research. As a reminder, good research begins with sound research practices, and one of the most fundamental of research practices is to start by stating one's assumptions. I hope that you have been able to find a research orientation that fits you well after listening to Good Research Episodes 1 through 3. In Episode 4, we move on to discuss qualitative research. You may recall from a previous podcast that qualitative methods are used by researchers who are less concerned with quantities of things or numeric data and more concerned about the qualities of things. Those things may be varied, such as narratives, pictures, other types of found objects or created objects, events, and experiences. Most often, Qualitative data are narratives from interviews or discussions, focus groups, or field notes from a researcher's observations. However, qualitative data may be visual or non-linguistic, but sound-based. These could be things like drawings, music, or vocalizations that are not language. In their guide to research design, Cresswell and Cresswell referred to qualitative research as being generally inductive. This means that a researcher starts with data and then works toward developing descriptions of the data from which conclusions can be drawn and sometimes from which generalizations might be made. However, I will note here that while most qualitative studies have tended toward being inductive, 
Even those begin with well-formed research questions, such as, what are the key characteristics of the free-form drawings of persons with Alzheimer's disease? Notice that the research question is broad. It doesn't suggest the characteristics or predict them. I'll come back to this issue of this type of the type of research question in a few minutes when I discuss a conventional researcher's approach to qualitative work. For now, I'll note that one might propose a research question that does predict something if he or she is a conventional traditional researcher. My sample question about Alzheimer's disease is not that type of question. It does not make a prediction that can be tested. Nevertheless, my sample research question is clearly one that can guide the development of specific methods for data collection and analysis, even though it doesn't make a prediction. It is very much like a number of the research questions that I have used in real qualitative research studies that are inductive. So let's think about how the sample research question might guide our methods. And I'll begin by stating that my research approach in this example will be one that derives from critical realism. You'll remember that critical realists and action researchers have an objectivist ontology, but a subjectivist epistemology. Later on, I'll come back to a research question that might be applied through a conventional traditional lens. And finally, I'll end up giving you a few notes about a phenomenological approach. First, let's consider the research question again from within an orientation of critical realism. So to review, the ontology is objectivist believing that there is some truth that might possibly be revealed. But the epistemology is subjectivist, focusing on the experiences and subjective qualities. The reflexivity is systematic and of the epistemic variety. And the researcher will be close to the subject of the study, but will not necessarily expect to generalize to the population. We know all of this based on what we learned in Good Research Episodes 1 through 3 about research orientations. Let's go back to our research question. What are the key characteristics of the free-form drawings of persons with Alzheimer's disease? First, I'll give some advice that is important to follow regardless of one's research orientation. It seems as if we will wish to obtain samples of freeform drawings from persons with Alzheimer's disease in this, in this particular study. Our best approach, given the nature of the disease, is to find people who have the diagnosis of probable Alzheimer's disease and collect some basic descriptive information about them, like age, sex, highest level of education, ethnicity, and race. In addition, we most likely will want a few details about the time since diagnosis, the stage of the disease, and the individual's level of functioning. No matter the research orientation, it is good practice to identify important subject characteristics that will help inform and enrich the data. 
demographic information and specific pieces of information that relate to the topic will be important to a consideration of the data. And in this case, given the subject, I would also suggest finding out about the person's history with regard to art and drawing. Experience may influence the characteristics of one's drawings. Again, this is important to know about, regardless of the research orientation being taken. And these are logical things to ask questions about, given the research topic. Now that we have an idea about the basic information that we want to collect, we need to think about the procedures for gathering freeform drawings. If we were conducting an interview study, then it would be important to consider procedures for asking questions and gathering answers. What would we ask? It would be important to develop a script for interviewing participants. For now, we'll assume that there is a source of research participants in this hypothetical study about drawings. So the group of persons who will take part, also known as the sample, is all ready for us to start data collection. In episode six of Good Research, I have more to say about research samples and sampling techniques. One of the simplest ways to collect arts-based information is by asking people to create art. This can be done in an art class, and the presence of others can be a motivator for people to draw. The class becomes a social event, and those who take part may benefit from that aspect of it. But a drawback is that the presence of others who are drawing may lead a person to copy a peer's work or derive ideas from it that are then put into her or his own drawing. From the researcher's vantage, this might be disadvantageous because the researcher may want to know about each person's work and its traits. A critical realist might not be too worried about this problem and might very well collect data in a drawing class. After all, he or she is interested in the subjective experiences of participants, and a sub subjective experience in an art class seems to be an organically emerging and valid experience. It's authentic. A constructivist or phenomenologist might also embrace the group setting, but go further to argue that the group creates the meaning and the drawings together, um, this, this creates a unique and, and a valuable experience. It might not necessarily indicate anything about other experience or other drawing environment. Uh, but it still may be meaningful, and constructivists, phenomenologists, interpretativists, they may very well be very interested in what is created in such a setting. By contrast, a conventional traditional scientist may very well reject the idea of collecting data in the group setting. In the long run, the critical realist wants to engage the participant in ways that may enhance subjective understandings, and this means that working with a participant in a group will not seem as detrimental to the art making and understanding processes as it might seem to the researcher who is of the conventional slash traditional orientation. Once the researcher has drawings from a number of research participants, the critical realist will work to better understand the qualities of the works. If the participant has described or explained something during the art production process, then the researcher may take note of this. 
And it wouldn't be unusual for a researcher to record the sessions using audio alone or video and audio. Having recordings is highly beneficial during data analysis as it allows the researcher to review and reflect multiple times. And this is true regardless of one's research orientation. If a researcher is collecting data that are primarily narrative, as in interviews or focus groups, then having a recording can be absolutely vital to data analysis. If recording is not available or not an option, then the researcher should take copious and detailed notes during the sessions so that he or she has a good record of what was said in an interview. With regard to analysis, Brown and Clark published a good guide for qualitative thematic analyses in 2006. That, since then, McGuire and Delahunt have updated it and offered a step-by-step -step set of instructions. Essentially, an inductive thematic analysis takes place in six phases. The goal is to determine the key themes in qualitative data by examining and re-examining those data during the analysis. If the data are pictures, then one looks at studies and reviews them. If the data are verbal, then having recordings and or transcripts is vital so that they can be scrutinized and reviewed. So one begins by studying the pieces of information that have been collected and reviewing them again. This is the first step in qualitative analysis. In phase two, the researcher will generate a list of codes that are the categories into which pieces of information in the data seem to fall. Will the focus be on what is in our participants' pictures? Will it be on how they drew the pictures? Will the researcher focus on the emotional contents of the drawings per the verbalizations of the artists? Or will the list of codes be those categories? What was drawn, how it was drawn, and what emotions are expressed? Regardless of the topic, an initial review of the data should lead to the generation of a list of codes or categories into which the pieces of information that were collected fit or fall. In our example study about art and Alzheimer's disease, the researcher might generate an initial list of three. And this would be generated from studying the available drawings, say for example, 20 drawings. Then he or she might move on to find the themes within the coding categories. For instance, the what might be a person or animal, a place, an inanimate object. The how, might be through sketching or drawing or via some other use of the drawing utensils and paper, like folding the paper. The emotional content might be regarded as generally positive or negative. Keep in mind that if the data are from an interview, this initial list of codes should not simply be the list of questions that have been asked. Instead, review the interview questions and think about the categories they are from. For example, you might have asked a, about a person's background in some questions. Then you might have asked 
about her or his current life or current status. Finally, you might have asked about her or his plans for the future. If so, then your initial list of codes might be the past, present, and future. And when you proceed to look for themes, you may find that there are specific types of themes that emerge within each of those time frames. A bit of terminology related to phase two in inductive thematic analysis is the phrase open coding. Many researchers use this, and it means that the list of codes is determined from the data and is not set beforehand. This is a truly inductive approach, whereby the researcher has not predetermined what categories might emerge from the data, but instead lets the data reveal that. In phase three, the researcher will review all data and search for themes. If the investigator is conducting something known as content analysis, then he or she will want to count the number of times each theme occurs across the data set. This is called quantitization. Quantitization. If this is a route that the researcher is taking, then reviewing and recounting the quantity of each theme is an important check and balance. In a purely thematic analysis without quantitization, no frequency counts are offered. But researchers still evaluate and reevaluate the data numerous times in order to engage in meaningful epistemic reflexivity, and they question their initial list of codes or themes. To a critical realist, such a review schema is absolutely paramount to discerning and describing a participant's subjective experiences. What key pieces of information are showing up in the data? Based on those key pieces of information, what do the data mean? You'll notice that my questions and the actions of steps two and three indicate that there are two levels of analysis. One is an analysis of what are the somewhat surface level features of what was said or done. And that is the manifest content of the data. And it can be described. However, many qualitative researchers go beyond the manifest content to look for and inter interpret things that may not be initially apparent in the data. Those ideas or things are the latent content. Depending on one's research orientation, there may or may not be a focus on interpreting latent content. Our critical realist may very well be focused on providing good descriptions of the themes while refraining from offering interpretations. He or she may be concerned with allowing the participants to speak for themselves through their own words and or pictures, rather than on providing a researcher contrived interpretation. I'll have more to say about this in a few minutes. For now, let's go on to phase four of the thematic analysis. This involves a careful and meticulous review of themes. Because the qualitative researcher does not have, a, have statistical tests and significance to offer, step four is vital to instilling the data analyses with rigor, and the researcher must question her or himself at each step along the way, asking, is this what the data are telling me? This is part of epistemic reflexivity.
If the data have been quantitized, then reviewing the frequency of each theme is important. If the data have not been quantitized, then mining the data and the notes to provide examples of each theme, and it's important, is paramount. Theme reviews should be conducted with an eye toward the following. Is the researcher trying to create a theme where it doesn't exist? Attempting to merge different themes to make them into one? Naming two different themes when the two actually have significant overlap? Missing themes that are in the data or missing sub-themes within themes? Going back into the data and one's notes will help to resolve these questions and issues. I often work with other researchers so that we can either build theme lists separately and then come together to compare them, or so that we can work collaboratively and build our code list and elaborated themes in a cooperative consensus building process. They are both techniques that may give your study rigor. You should consider these as means of building rigor in data analysis in your qualitative work. Phase one, five of inductive thematic analysis is to continue to distill and refine themes. Again, this is phase five. What is at the heart of each theme that has been identified? If we return to our example of drawings by persons with Alzheimer's disease, I proposed that an initial code list might be the subject matter of the drawing, the way that the person used the drawing materials, and the emotional valence of the picture. After devising the list of three codes, it is possible that themes such as important people, pets, significant events, and cherished objects emerged within the what did they draw category. The examples that I might have found in step three could be pictures of a spouse, a child, a family dog, a vacation destination like Hawaii, and a piano. In phase five, it would be important for the researcher to go back into the data and notes and reevaluate all themes and their examples. Are they mutually exclusive? Is the list of themes exhaustive? Do all researchers agree about the list of themes and the examples of them? Some researchers develop a thematic map during phase five. It is a diagram and each theme is represented by a shape. The label for the theme can be written or typed within the shape and lines can be drawn between shapes to show the possible relationships between themes. For example, if one theme is important people and another one is significant events, it is possible that many of those people were present at the events. Thus, a line could be drawn to connect the two themes and indicate that link. Being sure to provide readers with at least one good example of each theme and with descriptions of the relationships between them is very important. As the researcher moves into phase six, which is writing the report about the study, its data collection and analyses, 
it will be critical to remove participant names unless they or their legal guardians have given permission for their real names to be used. Specific examples from the data can be provided to readers with participants' pseudonyms in parentheses. I usually assign participant identifiers at random, like case number one, case number two, or I rename each participant with a false name in order to protect identities. Now that we have considered an example of a qualitative study that was approached from the vantage of critical realism, you might wonder how this project would be different if the researcher were a conventional traditional scientist. First and foremost, as part of the tendency toward objectivist epistemology and methodological reflexivity, the conventional scientist would devote considerable effort to putting in place a standardized protocol or set of procedures for testing each research participant. He or she would be focused on maintaining a conceptual distance from the research participant, not collaborating with the participant, nor being likely to interview participants in a group setting, unless, of course, it was a focus group. No, participants would likely be brought to a quiet, relaxing room and engaged by the researcher as he or she asked the participant to sit for a while and draw. The researcher would attempt to hold constant as many extraneous factors as possible, probably wishing to test people during similar hours of the day, across several days, and always using the same room regardless of who the participant was. This focus on the methods of the study and standardizing them is very important to a conventional researcher. It's not that other researchers might not necessarily do so, but for a conventional researcher practicing methodological reflexivity, this scrutiny of the methods and standardization of the protocols is absolutely essential. In addition, such a researcher is likely to use content analysis with quantitization of themes and is very likely to have offered a prediction in her or his research question with a code list that is specified in advance rather than using open coding. For instance, a conventional researcher might propose that the drawings of persons with Alzheimer's disease are more likely to be objects or abstractions during the later stages of the disease than in earlier stages. And then the researcher might very specifically evaluate each drawing to discern whether this seems to be the case. Furthermore, the conventional researcher might be prone to quantitize the data by coding abstractions and counting them to compare the number of abstractions in the pictures of those who have more advanced disease compared, again, to those with less advanced disease. For a conventional researcher who has conducted interviews or held focus groups, the process might be very similar as he or she spends considerable effort practicing the interview and standardizing the questions to be asked. The conventional researcher will be reluctant to construct meanings from the data. Rather, he or she will want to be as objective as possible when coding and analyzing so as not to taint the data with researcher biases. On the other hand, for a researcher who is a phenomenologist, many of the concerns of con the conventional researcher will be irrelevant. Instead, the phenomenologist may be wholly committed to hearing the participants' experiences in the moment and to observing them and interpreting them. 
especially for the hermeneutic phenomenologist or for an interpretivist. Construction of the subjective experience of drawing in the moment when it is happening is paramount. And returning to one's recordings and or notes of the events again and again and again is critical as the researcher practices hyper-reflexivity, going deep diving, as it were, into the data and into his or her interpretations of them. Wow, I have covered a lot in this episode of Good Research. I've used an example to try to give you a sense of how to conduct qualitative research. I have focused on critical realism while comparing the orientation to those of conventional traditional investigators and phenomenologist constructivists. In addition, I have detailed six steps for analyzing qualitative data inductively. It should not surprise you that there were a lot of words and a lot of ideas in this podcast about qualitative research. After all, qualitative work is very much about those very things, events, words, and the ideas that represent them. I hope that you have benefited from this episode. Keep in mind that good research comes with knowledge, skills, and practice. Take care now, and I'll be with you again in another episode of Good Research. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Good Research. To find more episodes like this, go to www.clovepress.com and click on the resource link. Have a great day.